Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hi everyone, I'm C.P. Leslie, the host of New Books in Historical Fiction. Today I'm speaking with Diane McKinney-Whetstone, the highly acclaimed author of Lazaretto. The Lazaretto of the title could be considered an early version of Ellis Island, a place where prospective immigrants to the United States could be checked and quarantined if they exhibited signs of illness, especially epidemic disease. Located south of Philadelphia, not far from today's airport, it was built at the turn of the 18th and 19th centuries in response to a yellow fever outbreak a few years earlier, replacing a facility from the 1740s. That newer lazaretto still exists, although the area where it stands is no longer an island, and the fear of immigrants and the threats they may pose are as fresh as yesterday's headlines. The novel, however, starts not at the lazaretto, but elsewhere in Philadelphia, on the night that Abraham Lincoln is assassinated. The dimly lit room smelled of sage and mint and boiled cotton. A lone candle high on a whitewashed mantle threw off just enough light to illuminate a space on the wall above it where a picture of Abraham Lincoln hung. The sight of him with his top hat and wry smile seemed to calm Maida as she pushed and moaned, her legs spread wide apart. Fourteen-year-old Sylvia gently slid her hands between Maida's legs into what felt to Sylvia like the center of a volcano. "'How many fingers can you insert?' asked Dr. Miss, the midwife directing Sylvia." My entire hand, Sylvia said, as a low-pitched cry of pain rumbled out of Mita, and Sylvia quickly pulled her hand back. Your hand is not the cause of her discomfort this moment, Dr. Miss said. This is her first, and there is no history to draw on with the first to help them when they push. Yes, ma'am, Sylvia said. This was also Sylvia's first. She'd worked here going on a year as assistant to Dr. Miss, and right now her duties had taken a monumental leap. She and Dr. Miss had exchanged places, and instead of dabbing Mita's forehead and speaking encouraging words in a soothing voice, and otherwise doing what Dr. Miss requested, Sylvia now sat on Dr. Miss's stool at the foot of the cot, taking the lead in delivering a baby. And now, please join me in welcoming Diane McKinney-Whetstone. Hi, Diane. Thanks for agreeing to talk with me today. Hi, Carolyn. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. So, Lazaretto is your sixth novel. Uh, you're celebrating the 20th anniversary of your first, Tumbling, which is a bestseller this year. Um, how did you get started as a writer? You, you know, I was actually, I wrote most of the first novel, Tumbling, while working full-time uh, as a government employee, where I was writing uh, things, uh, taking the science from the USDA Forest Service and making it palatable for lay audiences. And I actually started by getting up at 5 o'clock in the morning and working until 7, until it was time to get up and, you know, get the, the household up. And this magic happened during those two hours. And over a period of a couple of years, uh, where it didn't stay contained into those two hours, there were often days when I was calling in from work, uh, the, the novel Tumbling was born. And I was involved in a Rittenhouse Writers Group in Philadelphia, and a woman there had had a relationship with an agent in New York. 
I sent the manuscript to her in progress, and she wrote back and said she loved it. When I had a complete novel, please be back in touch with her, which I did. A year later, when I had what I felt was a fairly close first draft, uh, she loved it even more and said that uh, she knew an editor who would just uh, think that this novel was to die for. And she... She sent it, had it delivered to that editor, and within a week, I had a major publishing contract. So it happened astoundingly swiftly. I mean, I was prepared for the litany of rejections that, you know, I've been told are common for first-time novelists, uh, especially. And I was braced for that. But I was delighted that that was not my experience. I mean, within a week of getting an agent... I had a publishing contract, so that was was my road to publication, as it were. Um, the people at, at William Morrow, who was the, the publisher at that time, they've now been uh, absorbed by HarperCollins, uh, were just really good with me, you know, with the editing and just walking me through the process, and there was this sense that, you know, they wanted to keep me for novel after novel. Uh, it was it it really felt at the time like a dream come true, just because I had been prepared for the other side of it to write and be rejected in the paper, my wall with the rejection letters. Uh, but uh, again, I'm just delighted that that was not my experience. That's such a heartwarming story. It's wonderful that that that, that happened to you and that it actually ever happened. I mean, it's... Yeah. Yeah, the yeah. other side is that is what we all hear about. Absolutely, absolutely, absolutely. And and I was certainly prepared for the other side, for sure, for sure. So tell us a little bit about Tumbling. What is the essence of that novel? The, the novel is set in 1940s and 50s Philadelphia. And uh, in this, you know, what was, what seemed to me by my mother's stories, anyhow, an idyllic neighborhood. Uh, it was very close-knit neighborhood and... Uh, where the people got up every morning and scrubbed their steps and, you know, till they, like, shone like diamonds. And um, the music was a lot of uh, vibrant jazz during that time and acts played in Philadelphia, so the music was very important. Church was also very central. And there was just this feel of this community. And we'd grown up uh, with my mother's stories about what she affectionately called downtown, what's now South Philadelphia. And uh, But then, you know, when she would say, oh, such a thing would have never happened downtown, our response was always, well, why'd you move? Why'd you? Because we were raised in West Philadelphia. And she said, well, they were going to build a road. And so hearing that uh, throughout my childhood, when I started writing on a novel, not even knowing what it would be about, or where it would be set, except that these uh, details from my mother's stories have fallen onto the page, I realized I was writing about uh, her neighborhood, the neighborhood she talked about and loved, and that this notion of the road, I just fictionalized. So that uh, the story tumbling is actually about a, a family and a community on this block of Lumbridge Street, and an infant girl is left on the main character steps pre-dawn morning and they take the child in and raise her as their own. And then five years later, it happens again. 
And uh, there's like a jazz singer who's pivotal to the story. Noon and Herbie, uh, the two main characters, are actually living in an unconsummated marriage, uh, which, you know, persists for 20 years. And uh, so uh, it's been the, the road, the, the city wants to build a road through this community, and this notion of the road and this community being set apart in such a way just brings everybody's individual conflicts uh, to the fore. And, uh, and the novel just takes off. That's great. Um, so all your novels are set in whole or in part in Philadelphia, right, Tim? Yes, they are. Mm-hmm. And is that because that's the that's your hometown, or I think it's part well, partly certainly because it's my hometown. And when I first start writing a novel, I never know much about the story. I don't know much about the character, so the thing at least that I can know is the place. You know, the sense of place, and uh, whether it was tumbling in the 1940s and 50s, where I, I used my mother's stories, and my father was still alive during the writing, so I could could certainly tap his memory, or or later times where I could draw on my own memory of these places, of these neighborhoods, of these blocks. You know, the clatter, the rhythm, the smells, like. All of all of these things about the city I know and recognize, and so uh, because I don't know much else, I just like zone in on on the sense of place, and the place then becomes a character until the other characters start to emerge and the storyline emerges, and finally I can see a plot that I can follow. Uh, so I always start with the place, and I think obviously Philadelphia because I know Philadelphia. But also because just, you know, the city is such, it's a place of such contraries. I mean, it's on the one hand, you know, very cosmopolitan, I think, world-class city. And, uh, but on the other hand, it can have a really small-town provincial feel, particularly when you go kind of block by block and neighborhood by neighborhood. I mean, it's a place that, um, you know very moneyed, a lot of money, old moneyed people in Philadelphia, and and yet it's also a place with extreme, extreme poverty. Uh, it's a place where there are just, you know, a whole, like, kind of international in its feel in terms of just the types of people who call Philadelphia home, uh, but yet it can feel like really, really segmented, I mean, block by block, where you are a stranger in another neighborhood if you cross the street. So that I think uh, because of the contraries of the city, you know, that that I've experienced, it just becomes a rich setting for a novel since, you know, a novel does kind of have uh, tentacles and and grows all over the place, that there is always... um, a different thing, a different texture uh, when I'm setting the novel here. That's really interesting. It's so many novels. I should mention that I also live in the Philadelphia region, and it's kind of the forgotten stepchild between New York and Washington, D.C. Right. I think it's starting to get on the map a little bit. Um, but it is a really interesting city. In some ways, it's very parochial, and in other ways, as you say, it's very cosmopolitan and international, and it, it's a real 
I can see why you would work with it. I also think it's really interesting that you start with the place. I, I had one other author, Virginia Pye, who starts with the place and, and the setting, and then she goes from there. Um, I tend to start with an image, so what I see first is um, almost like a metaphor for the story, and I have to spend weeks figuring out what the metaphor is telling me. Okay. I'm glad you said weeks figuring out because <laughs> absolutely, no matter where I, it's the weeks figuring out. Absolutely, absolutely. Uh-huh. So you have Tempest Rising and leaving Cecil Street, um, in which I said in the '60s. Uh, blues dancing is in the '70s and the '90s. Trading Dreams at Midnight is in the 1980s and 2000s, and that one I think goes in part outside Philadelphia, right? It does a little bit. Yes, yes. Mm-hmm. Um, so now. Um, now we come to Lazaretto, which is also set in Philadelphia, but much earlier. Yeah. And, um, but actually, before we get to that, I, as you mentioned, there are family conflicts. I wondered if, I mean, almost every novel has family conflicts, right? Unless it's an action adventure story or maybe a mystery, but even those often have family conflicts. Are there, is what, they're one of your novels which is especially dear to your heart? Hmm. You know, they all are. It, you know, it's like having, like, I guess a lot of children. Each one is special in its own way. Um, it is, they are, you know, a tumbling certainly because of, you know, with these children being left on the steps and the way this, fam- you know, it come, the family is almost like a put-together family um, since they didn't, you know, they didn't have the children. So, and just the relationships. Uh, that that these people have and that they form the bond, this like very strong bond, uh, was pivotal and you know was was, was very affecting to me. And and in Tempest Rising, uh, these these girls are taken from their family and placed in foster care. So it is like this just disruption and separation of the family uh, that that drives that novel. And in Blues Dancing, uh, there's a young, a young woman who becomes addicted to heroin, you know, when she comes north uh, to attend school. And so it is then the effect that uh, a one family member's actions, you know, when they're destructive, can have on just the, the entire family. And, and that was just very interesting to me. Uh, with with leaving Cecil Street, this you know this block is a family, and uh, one of the the young women, teenage girl, has uh, what then was a you know a backroom abortion, and the effect that this has on this entire block because it has somewhat devastating consequences. The effect this has on this block, not only her family and her best friend's family, but the entire block is 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 like a family. Uh, the novel opens with a block party, and Trading Dreams is it's um, the search for family, where this young woman spends the entire novel searching for her mother, and so it is like like wanting family and searching for family, and uh, and then in Lazaretto, you know, we come to just um, the family as um, uh, in enlarged. And who is a part of the family and who's not, and kind of a, a redefining of what a family is and means. So I suppose all in different ways are just, just you know, very close to my heart. 
So let's talk about Lazaretto then. What inspired you to write this story, which is considerably earlier in terms of time than any of the ones that you've done so far? It is. It is much earlier, and as a result, was you know much more challenging to write since obviously there were not people alive I could talk to to get, uh, you know, just to get their sense of what what the place was like. I I actually was going to write about the yellow fever epidemic in the uh, uh, late 1700s and the 1790s that practically decimated the city of Philadelphia. I think, you know, the population lost maybe 20% of the people. And um, at the time, prominent uh, physician Benjamin Rush had pushed the notion that black people were immune to the fever. And it which turned out not to be true, but, you know, the uh, black people were pressed into service to help care for the sick and dying. And uh, I thought, wow, that's that's an interesting, you know, provocative notion, and that might be a novel. And I mentioned it to my husband, who loves to do research, just and so he started emailing me volumes about uh, the yellow fever epidemic, and just, you know, more than I could read, and I had to like yell, like stop, enough. <laughs> and, Except that when I was, uh, you know, skimming through the material, I kept seeing this lazaretto. And then just the name, the way it rolls off the tongue is, you know, I like the sound of the word lazaretto. And what is this lazaretto? And I discovered that it was a quarantine station uh, that was actually set up to protect against another yellow fever outbreak because another one... uh, you know, to the proportion of the one that that decimated the city, really could have permanently reduced Philadelphia to just a squalor-filled place of you know smoking rags, smoldering rags. I mean that that is what the city uh, was in danger of becoming because uh, during that out that horrible outbreak, like you know, people with money left, anyone who could got out. Uh, it, it, the city at that point was the capital for both the state. Uh, and federal government, and then they both fled. And so uh, it was a pivotal point for Philadelphia because it was do or die for the city. And so uh, the Lazaretta was set up, and all ships coming into the port of Philadelphia during high quarantine season, which was June to September, had to first be inspected. And any uh, passengers who appeared sick uh, were pulled off, until they recovered or it was, you know, could be confirmed they were in decent health or sadly until they died. And um, cargo was inspected. Anything that was suspect was burned. And it was just, um, it was it was there, Lazaretto set up just to protect the city from another yellow fever outbreak or any kind of plague, as it were. They could literally take the uh, the city down. So I was fascinated by this this notion, and uh, you know, Lazar. The name is from uh, Lazarus, the patron patron saint of lepers, and also Lazarus uh, biblically. Uh, Jesus raised raised Lazarus from the dead. So uh, just the name had just significance. And it just, this place just felt like a place to set a novel. I mean, where it, uh, 
you know, on the one hand, it's filled with possibilities. People are, immigrants are beginning their their lives here. And on the other hand, uh, potentially filled with plague, with disease, with death, with mystery. And it just, it seemed like a very textured place to set a novel. Uh, as I've, you know, read, you talked about us being, you know, which we are between New York and D.C., uh, the Lazaretto was actually, some historians say, you know, it's the grandfather or grandmother to Ellis Island. Uh, and and during its height, more immigrants were processed through the Lazaretto than were processed at Ellis Island. And, of course, everyone in the world knows about Ellis Island. I didn't know about the Lazaretto, and I'm a native Philadelphian. And, and as you said, you know, you, you did not either. And yet it is this place that is, you know, this historical gem, very historically significant, not just for the Philadelphia area, but really for for the entire country. So I decided to use that as a partial setting. Actually, I thought it initially in the writing, I thought it would be the entire setting. But, um, you know, the story would not stay contained on the Lazaretto because the characters had backstories. And so <clears throat> the, a full half of the novel, or, more, or almost a half of the novel, takes place in Philadelphia. And, uh, but then the things really happen when all these people converge on this quarantine station. Yeah, I had never heard of it. It's like 10 minutes from my house. I couldn't believe it. It still exists, it's, the rebuilt uh, building. Have you been out there? I have. I went out there several times. I I never actually went inside, but I did, you know, there. I walked around the building and just stood there. And uh, usually when I was stuck in the writing and I hope for an epiphany, <clears throat> I mean, that never happened. But <laughs> at least I did. Uh, I did. I actually did visit. And um, yes, yeah, so it's and it's still there. As you said, it's it is still there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was an island then, and then they filled it in, apparently. It's, um, it's very, I mean, the whole image, as you say, is, is terribly evocative, and it's still, you know, it's still a problem that we're looking at today. People are still afraid of immigrants, and they're still worried about what they're going to bring. And, Absolutely. And yet Absolutely. it's a nation of immigrants, you know. It's, it's very bizarre. Absolutely. It, it is very bizarre. And, and, and the other thing is that, you know, the uh, yellow fever was transmitted by, Mosquitoes, and that was not known at this point. Uh, that people were, you know, that there was this huge fear of it, and keep people out who could potentially have it and burn all of this cargo. And yet here it is, uh, transmitted by mosquitoes, you know. And I think in the same way that uh, people fear immigrants for for whatever reasons, when actually there's no rational reason. Uh, for the response. So that is, that's absolutely true what you're saying. Mm-hmm. So um, what made you decide to begin right after the Civil War? Because the Lazaretto itself had been in operation for some time by then. It, it had been in operation for some time and, and in fact, ceased operation uh, in the 18, early 1890s. And so I thought, originally I thought I would put it when the Lazaretto was winding down. And um, uh, just to get, you know, like near the end of it. And then I think also it was more a conscious decision. I ended up actually starting it, as you've noted, 
uh, after the Civil War, I think it was a conscious decision not to deal with uh, slavery in, in an emphatic sense. In other words, even though uh, slavery didn't exist in, you know, in that form, had not existed in that form uh, in Philadelphia for some time, but I didn't, I just didn't want it to be then a book about slavery, uh, even though the effects of slavery are still uh, very rampant and uh, very visceral in, you know, in the novel. So I think it was a conscious decision. It was a conscious decision on my part to start it after the Civil War. So, um, as people will know from my introduction, uh, the first two characters that we meet are um, Sylvia with her, I guess you call her her boss. Uh, Sylvia is a, a very young apprentice midwife. Um, and they're delivering a baby, and the mother is Mita, uh, who is a major character. Sylvia is also a major character. Um, tell us about Mita. Who is she and what happens to her and the baby at the beginning of the book? We don't want to, you know, give away the okay, the no main spoilers. parts of the plot here. <laughs> right, no spoilers. Right, absolutely. no spoilers, absolutely. Yeah. Um, uh, as, as the novel opens, Mita is, uh, she's giving birth to a baby. And she actually has, um, she's been brought to this place, to this midwife, uh, by her employer, Tom Benning, who is, you know, a very uh, privileged, connected white lawyer. And, and she's carrying his child. And uh, Dr. Miss, the midwife, Sylvia's uh, instructor, as it were, her boss, you know, Sylvia works for her uh, trying to learn. Sylvia must become a nurse, and, and Dr. Miss is, is certainly a more than apt uh, teacher. Um, Dr. Miss had, had become known in Tom Benning's circle as a person who could take care of these situations. And so he has, he has um, traveled with Mita here to Dr. Mrs. Establishment, but they realized that Mita is too far along uh, that, you know, this baby is about to be born and that this is, uh, you know, quote-unquote situation that cannot be handled by Dr. Miss in, in the ways that Tom Benning had hoped. And so the baby is delivered. Uh, Sylvia actually delivers the baby. And it is the first time in her time with Dr. Miss that she's actually sat on the stool and helped usher a baby into life. Uh, heretofore, she would be uh, with the, the mother, dabbing her forehead, encouraging her, doing whatever Dr. Miss told her to do. But she never before sat at the foot of the bed and actually watched a baby be born. So this baby is special to Sylvia because it's her first. And um, and it's, you know, Mita's baby. Uh, but as, you know, even this is, you know, even in the first chapter is revealed that uh, they take the baby, Dr. Miss takes the baby and uh, is instructed by Tom Benning, the baby's father, uh, to tell me that the baby has expired. And uh, so Sylvia and Mita are both grief-stricken. Sylvia, because uh, she knows that the baby was born alive and healthy, but yet has to tell Mita uh, that her baby died. And Mita, because she's lost her baby. 
And in the in the opening scene, you know, she's stretching her hands out to Sylvia, my baby, you know, let me have my baby. Uh, but Dr. Miss takes the baby away. So um, Mita is, you know, employed in Tom Benning's house as a kind of assistant to he and, and his wife. I mean, she, she's not actually a maid, but she, you know, she, she takes care of, like, their clothes and their personal items and does their snacks uh, because, you know, otherwise they have a full-time cook. But she does those kinds of things. She answers correspondence for his wife uh, because she, uh, Mita has been well-educated by the Quakers and reads and writes very well. So, um, so but yet she is devastated because, I mean, obviously, clearly devastated uh, at the loss of her of her child. She also has Mita. This is um, also has. We can't call it a special relationship because they don't actually know each other, but a special feeling for about Abraham Lincoln and who is who dies. I mean, this is the right. the night of his assassination, or sure. at least when the news reaches Philadelphia. Sure. Um, can you tell us a little bit about that? Sure. She does have a special relationship with Abraham Lincoln. I mean, he was, you know, looked at, you know, very favorably by uh, many black people during the time and unfavorably by some who felt that he was not moving swiftly enough or that he could be doing more uh, uh, around the issue of slavery in the country. But uh, for me, it's even more personal because, you know, she would ask her mother from time to time, who her father was, and um, her mother clearly did not know, uh, and because of the times, uh, you know, her mother had probably been in situations uh, like Mita herself was, where she was employed in households, and uh, even though uh, there was no real slavery in Philadelphia, um, there was, in a sense. I mean, these women were kind of owned uh, by their employers. And so uh, Mita, Mita's mother tells her um, to just pick a one. When she asks her who her father is, and her mother says, pick a one, pick a good one, and say he be the one. And, uh, you know, Mita would mention someone to her mother, and her mother would just kind of turn up her nose. Uh, but when she mentioned Abraham Lincoln, I, I say Abraham Lincoln is my father, and her mother smiles and, and and seems pretty pleased with that. And so in Mita's head, since her mother told her, pick a one, pick a good one, and say he be the one, uh, in Mita's mind, Abraham Lincoln becomes her father. Of course, he's not really her father, but... In her mind and in her heart, he's her father. And so she um, she just attaches huge meaning to him and also to his death because when she is, when she's in the throes of labor, all she can see in front of her is the um, sketching of Abraham Lincoln that's hanging on the mantle above a small flickering candle. And... Uh, she imagined that he is helping her and telling her, you're doing well, and even tells her 
you know, when the time of crowning comes, oh, the baby's almost here, you're doing well, Mita, and she just imagines uh, that he's talking to her. Uh, and then the next morning, after they've taken her baby from her, and she's looking at the wall, um, and he's not, he's no longer talking, and then she learns that uh, he, in fact, had been assassinated. So she just uh, is devastated, twin losses, you know, her baby and now the president. And so she really, she begins sketching him. And her sketches of him just, um, she becomes known by them. And uh, everyone who is special to her has one of her sketches of Abraham Lincoln, her brother for sure, uh, hanging on, on their dining room wall somewhere. Uh, just She becomes noted for sketching Abraham Lincoln in you know, a variety of poses, smiling, not smiling, uh, just because he was just that special to her in her mind and her heart. So when she uh, recovers enough from childbirth, she understandably doesn't want to go back to Tom Menning's house immediately, although she's employed by him, so she's going to have to go back eventually. And she finds her way to an orphanage, and here the Lincoln thing comes in again because she has just lost her baby, so she, um, she encounters these two newborn boys at the orphanage, and she becomes their wet nurse initially. Um, and she names them after the president, Bram and Lincoln, and they are also major characters in the story. Um, their development is really, I think, the essence of the story in a sense. Um, tell her about, tell us about them, uh, and about her relationship with them and how that plays into her relationship with the Benins as she goes back to them. Yeah, she uh, she becomes she she is still very much grieving. And in fact, when she goes to she goes to the orphanage, uh, Benning has has loaned her out to help at this orphanage while the uh, so that the staff can go in and visit uh, visit the president's body while he is uh, in Philadelphia at, at Independence Hall. And and Mita goes and. You know, she's there. These these infants, and she tells the uh, tells the, the the head of the orphanage, um, well, I'm here just to take care of the babies. When she learns that there are babies there, and um, uh, so they allow her to do that. So her time is exclusively with these two orphans, and she becomes so attached to them. I mean, she feeds them, she coos to them. She tends to them, uh, and and they just fill this void, this you know tremendous void that she has grieving over the loss of her own baby, and 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 these two babies uh, fill it for a time, and uh, she develops really a special relationship with the 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 woman who heads the orphanage, and uh, that woman, Anne, in fact, suggested that. You know, she sees how close Mita is to the boys and says, why don't you just take them back when you go back to the Benning household? And Mita says, well, he would never allow that. And she convinces her that, you know, you you have more power than you realize. Ask him. And he, he declines, but he does strike a compromise and says that, 
Well, they can come on weekends. So uh, the boys then come uh, to when Rita returns to the Benny household, the boys come back with her on weekends and on holidays. And otherwise, she plans her her the errands and whatnot that she has to do outside of the Benning. She plans them so that they can be near the orphanage, you know, where she takes uh, Benning's boots and uh, or, or something to be repaired for Benning's wife. She finds places that are close to the orphanage so that she can also then pop in uh, on the babies, you know, during the week. And so they um, they 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 grow to love Mita, and Mita grows to love them. And whenever she can, she has them. She has them with her, and they almost they almost you know they're these two white boys, but they they she loves them as if you know she's born them herself. So um, so this brings us really to something that you raised earlier, but it's a very important part of the novel, I think, which is that there are these two um, complementary and to some extent contrasting communities. And Mita and Sylvia go back and forth between this very affluent white community and the um, the black community, which is where their friends and family are. And, sh- and Mita takes the boys with them. And of course, the boys are also in the orphanage, which is like a poor white community. So they're they're living in these three different worlds. How do you see these different communities? What is they almost have their own characters? Mm-hmm. They do have their own characters, and they are. I mean, on on the one hand, there is the world of uh, of the Benning household, this you know very upper class uh, world, and where uh, where Vita is employed, and you know she has learned to navigate, and where she brings the boys. And they also learn to navigate in different ways. Uh, one becomes uh, fascinated with the piano. Benning's wife uh, is a very accomplished pianist and uh, tries to teach the boys piano. And uh, the one, Brom, loves the piano and is actually quite good at it. Link, uh, the other, hates it. And as a result, uh, Benning's wife dislikes him. Uh, she really didn't want any of the boys in her house. Anyhow, you know, sullying up her house, these little orphan boys, so that that there's this distinction drawn, um, you know, among the white people of this, like, rich and poor, the boys and then the Bennings, and then the obvious distinction uh, was the black people, uh, where... Uh, Mita is, you know, employed in this this upper class white household, and Sylvia, whose family is uh, fairly well off. I mean, they're homeowners and um, they're learned. Her father teaches at, you know, what was what is now known as uh, Cheney University, and uh, so you know they're upper class. And then Mita's brother Buddy uh, is a gambler. And uh, Mita also takes at least Link to Buddy's house, and then Brom also ends up there. And so there is this, like, real, uh, there's this, like, vibrant, just active uh, lock of, you know, where the gambling houses are and uh, where Mita goes and, and the boys also go. 
so there are each of these communities kind of, you know, I guess fill-ins for what the communities were like, very entrenched, and people behave uh, within the communities in ways that are expected of them. And so you get this sense of these boys, uh, these white boys who go across all of them. I mean, they, they go to Buddy's house and, and, you know, where the gambling is going on, and they go to the Bennings, you know, this upper-class uh, white neighborhood, and then they, they, they are at the orphanage, you know, poor white boys. And so they kind of go across uh, all of the communities in a way that, uh, you know, probably may have been exceptional because, you know, these with, within these communities, um, you know, they're like they're walls and and they are not to be crossed, uh, which is Benning's wife really protests the boys living there because this is, you know, this is breaking breaking down a barrier here, having these poor white boys, you know, in her house every weekend. Um uh, so, and then Mita takes, you know, the boys to her brother's house, which is, again, a barrier. You know, these little white boys in this house, you know, we're black gamblers. Um, so that, uh, and Sylvia actually has a friend uh, who lives on, that she meets early on in the novel, who lives on, on Buddy's block, on this house, on this block where there are gambling houses. And so she then also enters this world and again for an upper-class educated person like Sylvia you know that's a no-no to be down there on Fitzwater Street uh, so that uh, throughout the novel there are these like very entrenched lines that are drawn not to be crossed uh, so that society can function as it functions you know with people on the top and people on the bottom um, but yet the characters kind of just as, you know, the racism and the bigotry is systemic, uh, the characters kind of systemically cross these lines and, and enter into each, each enter in communities where they otherwise are not supposed to go. And, um, and that certainly wasn't my plan as I wrote the novel, but, you know, you figure things out in the writing. And, um, and so that became very exciting for me to explore. Yes, and uh, it's one of the things I particularly loved about reading the novel is that you get these very distinct um, senses of the, the different communities and the characters. And, of course, you know, characters at a certain level have a mind of their own, and so they, they insist on forcing themselves in directions that you may not have wanted. But then absolutely, we're going to um, skip most of the rest of part one because I don't want to give away too much of the story. But even in the, the promotional material on the back of the book, it mentions that um, that the Lazaretto is it's sort of a crucible of the story, but it's also um, the extension, really, of what you were just talking about because all of these communities come together on the Lazaretto or at the Lazaretto. Mm-hmm. Um, it's an isolated setting um, because, as I mentioned, it it was then an, Ireland, an island, so it was near the city, but to get there you had to go by boat. Mm-hmm. And um, so it's sort of like, a, you know, a setting worthy of an Agatha Christie movie um, mm-hmm. or a story, even though it's not a detective novel in any sense. Um, what What do you want to tell us about what 
brings the various characters there. You you don't have to give away anything that you don't want to give away, but but there are in, you know there are already indications about how they get to the lazaretto. Mm-hmm, 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 mm-hmm. So so about how they um you, you want to know like how they actually get there or just I mean just- what takes what what in this their story path takes them there. So Sylvia for example is a nurse and she's right. actually working there. Right. Sylvia is a nurse and just looks at this opportunity uh, as a way to you know, I mean in, in her time and in certainly her class she was expected to marry well for a black woman of her time, you know, as her mother had, and to begin, you know, keeping house. Uh, but she resists that. I mean, she wants to be a nurse. There's something about to her um, about being a nurse that just puts her at, you know, this this point of of uh, this intersection of life and death and. You know, just the opportunity to participate in that, to participate in somebody's healing uh, or to soften somebody's death. I mean, she just, just to be at this, to travel this road with a person as a nurse, uh, she wants that much more than she wants a traditional life of being a wife. And so she looks at this opportunity on the Lazaretto as a way to escape that. She can push off marriage because I'm traveling to the Lazaretto to work as a nurse, uh, which which she does. So that is that is how she she ends up there and and eventually secures a position there for her best friend Nevada, uh, who lived on the gambling block, who becomes uh, the Lazaretto's head cook. Um, Link and Brom end up there because. Uh, there, there is, there is, um, you know, things happen to Lincoln Brom uh, when they're in an orphanage, and uh, when the the director, directress who had been there and who loved them and who loved Mita leaves, uh, they they then fall prey, as it were, to the new head of the orphanage, and uh, Link protects Brom in a scene, and they have to run. And they escape to Buddy's house, and uh, and they have to go because the man who they who Link assaults and protection of from is very well connected, and there's a bounty on his head, so they leave. Uh, but uh, when they return, Brom falls ill, and is missing, and someone tells him that oh, your brother was taken to the Lazaretto. And having nothing else to go on, and this is the only, you know, real family he has, Brom, at this point, uh, he travels to the Lazaretto to find Brom. And so that is how Link ends up here. Uh, Two of the Lazaretto staff are getting married, and they request of the quarantine master that they hold their wedding there. And he had allowed a similar arrangement for a white couple the year before, and this quarantine master, you know, was from a line of abolitionists and tries to do what he can to equalize, you know, the small part of the world that he controls, which is the Lazaretto. And so he consents to them having the wedding there, and they send word to Philadelphia, and uh, he's expecting, you know, four people to come, and yet there's a boatload uh, who travel to the Lazaretto. And so the quarantine master then 
for the comfort of, of the black living staff there, gives uh, all of the white people leave for the weekend. And he himself leaves and so allows the Lazaretto uh, just to be for so that the black people can enjoy their wedding in comfort without having to look over their shoulders to see, you know, what are these white people thinking of what we're doing or just the way, uh, you know, black people will feel constrained when white people are about so that they all, all the white folks are given leave. So it just leaves this, this, um, they're just the, the, uh, the black folks here, except for Link, who shows up looking for prom. And, um, well, the quarantine master also leaves his nephew there, who is, who is very mentally challenged. He's a big strapping guy, but has the intellect of, you know, an eight or nine year old. And, uh, but he's there to help them if they need help moving things and whatnot. And he's just a sweet, sweet person, uh, who the staff loves. And so it's no problem, uh, him being left there. Um, so we should there. probably leave it there so that you don't have to say too much. But, you know, I don't know whether it's wildly appropriate or wildly inappropriate, but when I was looking for information on the Lazaretto as I was getting ready to prepare for the interview, I found um, on the Internet that there's a Lazaretto ballroom, which must be either on the premises or very close to it, where people right. now regularly go to have wedding receptions. They, they do. <laughs> it's It's... It's and I had not known that um, the actual the actual structure is still there, and next to it is the is this you know Lazaretto ballroom, and it's been many iterations. You know, uh, um, air air thing, um, uh, seaplane uh, place. You know, in the early 1900s, it's gone through through many iterations, and um, you know, a firehouse perhaps. Uh, there is certainly a huge movement afoot to have it like just completely historically certified so that, you know, it, it can't be touched. Um, but yes, absolutely. It is, it is, um, I thought, you know, the fact that, wow, so there are weddings here now. Uh, <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> How wild is that? You know? <laughs> yes, yes, yes. Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh-huh, uh-huh, uh-huh. So what would you like readers to take away from Lazaretto? Well, I think, um, you know, certainly, you know, I play around with race somewhat in the novel and not not play around with it in any kind of funny sense, but just the whole notion of race. And 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 there are points in the novel where um, the default is changed from historically the default, you know, would always be, you know, white and people wanting to be white except that, you know, in the Lazaretto, the default is reversed, and there are, you know, in, in, in the novel, there's, you know, one young woman who looks very white, and she hates to be confused for white, because she just wants to be black and wants to be known as black, whereas really, uh, in, in during, you know, historically, if someone could certainly pass for white, they likely would just to have, you know, better shot at opportunity and, you know, then be able to help their family and everything. So, um, so that the, the default is changed somewhat. And, and so, you know, I think it, it's, it gets down to the sense of, and not in a, in a hokey sense of race doesn't matter, not in the, in the kind of Pollyannish way 
oh, well, we're all the same, it doesn't matter. Um, because we're not all the same, but I think, you know, one of the points that came to me as I'm writing the novel is that, well, yeah, we're not all the same, but there's strength and beauty in that, too, that we're not all the same, and so the not sameness does matter, but it matters, I think, in the best possible ways, and that, you know, when all of these people, like, come together on the Lazaretto, uh, things happen, and and they happen in a way that, uh, you know, whether a person is black or white, you know, or confused, um, that it's okay. I mean, that they are who they are. Um, so I think that that's kind of kind of the point of the book that you know uh, that that our differences are not the problem. You know, our differences are the solution. Um, what I what I came to through the writing, and I hope that you know the reader would would certainly uh, take that. Yes, I think it's a question of respect, ultimately being able to respect differences rather than um, because what what comes out at the beginning of the novel is really a kind of it's a social disrespect. It's it's being acted out by people, but it is you know, Mita is being treated disrespectfully. Um, she's not being appreciated um, or treasured or, you know, her her needs and her child and so on are not being given the same um, importance as, say, those of her employer or her employer's wife. Or... Right, right, right. Absolutely. Absolutely. That is absolutely what it boils down to. So it's, you're right. It It, it does boil down to respect. And so it's not to like, you know, whitewash showed it. Well, we're all the same. We're not all the same, but it is to to be respected um, because of our differences and despite our differences. So uh, that is that is pretty much the point of the point of it. Yes. Mm-hmm. Now this book is really hot off the press. I mean, it's. I think it was released maybe a couple of weeks ago at the most. Are you yeah. already working on something else? I am working on something else, and I mean, what I'm working on now is fairly contemporary in that it it opens in the in you know in today, except that um, as in all the novels, it just it won't stay contained there. And so, these people have pasts and they have backstories that I am now exploring. Uh, it actually opens on a uh, a uh, 55 plus active living community, and. Um, uh, but things happen, so I'll just say that. <laughs> <laughs> well, I wish you the best of luck with it, and thank you so much for sharing your time with us. It's been great. Oh, it's been a wonderful conversation. Thank you so much. Absolutely. Thank you, Carolyn. Mm-hmm. And thank you for listening to our podcast. Once again, I am C.P. Leslie, and today I've been talking with Diane McKinney-Whetstone about her novel, Lazaretto. You can find out more about her at www.mckinney-whetstone.com. Like us on Facebook, search for NB Historical Fiction, and follow us on Twitter at New Books Histvic. If you do, you'll see each time we post a new interview. You can also find out more about me, my website, and my books at blog.cplesley.com, where I upload expanded posts about the interviews and in general discuss history, historical fiction, and the rapidly changing publishing industry. 
Since January 2016, I have added blog posts about books sent to me that for one reason or another don't fit into my interview schedule. So the blog is becoming an extension of this channel. Goodbye until my next conversation about new books in historical fiction.